Welcome to the TESFE podcast with me, Sarah Simons. Today's guest reviewer is Mr. Bill Watkin. Hi, Bill. Hello, Sarah. Please, can you tell us about what you do? Yes, I'm Chief Executive of the Sixth Form Colleges Association, which is a membership association for all the Sixth Form Colleges in England and one in Wales, and a number of Sixth Form providers from the GSE world and a growing number of 16 to 19 academies. But our emphasis is very much on sixth form education in a college context. Well, thank you for joining me. Um, Shall we crack on with this week's magazine, have a look through? Yes, good. So this first piece is by George Ryan. The headline is T-Levels, a secretive cull of FE provision. It says, under wide-ranging reforms of technical education, many courses that have previously been taught in college classrooms are expected to become apprenticeship only. Such a restriction will limit opportunities for young people and could put some colleges in financial jeopardy, college leaders tell George Ryan. What are your thoughts on this? Well, as Julia says in her editorial, T-levels absolutely should be an opportunity for the sector and for the young people studying in it. But from a sixth form college perspective, I have to say they should be an opportunity, but not at the expense of applied general qualifications, which are currently under, under review and we're anticipating eagerly the response to the consultation from the government. Um, I, I am concerned that in its efforts to push the 16-plus population towards T-levels, that applied generals might be overlooked. And I'm also concerned that the government might not achieve its targets as far as T-levels are concerned. I know they haven't published specific targets, but they, they have hopes and aspirations. I recently heard an employer state that if the requirement for the extensive work placement isn't uh, either dropped altogether or amended, the T-levels are going to really struggle um, because employers, especially SMEs, will not find it easy to take on the extent of work experience, the work placement that the T-levels require. The scary thing about this is that although the introduction of T-levels seems some way off and there's so much work still to be done, it's actually the current year nine cohort who will be in the guinea pig year. So Uh, In terms of young people's choices, they're just about to make their choices for Key Stage 4, which will lead into their choices for Key Stage 5, and and we'll we'll have to wait and see how many young people are going to be enthused and feel confident about going to down a T-level pathway. The piece says the overhaul will consolidate the current 13,000 or so technical qualifications and set out 15 T-level routes. The first are due to start in 2020 with the rest due to be implemented by 2022. So that isn't long away at all is it? And the really interesting point that George makes it seems to me is that those T-levels which are designated apprenticeship only are currently being taught in colleges across the country. And if students are going to be directed away from those taught courses in colleges to an apprenticeship environment, colleges are going to really feel the loss of students and the the, the loss of revenue attached to those students. It's going to be a big problem. And and as Sam Perrett says, this could lead to a wider skills gap, not a narrower one. So I'm I'm not not in favour of T-levels. I think it's absolutely right for the skills plan and the industrial strategy to work. Uh, We need a a better skilled workforce, and T-levels look to be one way of achieving that. But my my 
big worry is that applied generals are going to go by the wayside. And in fact, when the government talks about tea levels, my response tends to be, well, it's all very well looking at what is said, but it's also extremely important to the sixth form sector to, to notice what is not said, and that is that applied generals still have a place in the sixth form curriculum. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting what Julia Belgatai said in the editorial where she says, call me a cynic, but it seems to me that reform is often motivated by the need to make the figures add up just in time for the next election. She says, look at the reformed apprenticeships, for example. Are they actually increasing opportunities? And in the context of sixth form colleges, they struggle the two sectors. So they technically are part of the FE sector. They're, they're incorporated. But that on the other hand, they employ school teachers. They fish in the same pool of schools mm-hmm. in their recruitment. And they teach a sixth-form curriculum, which is largely A-levels and applied generals, with some, though not many, T-levels. I've got various propositions that I think are extremely important. I think the industrial strategy and the skills plan cannot be delivered through T-levels alone. Um, If you were to listen to government ministers, uh, you you might think that's not the case because so much of their focus is on T-levels. But of course, if you're going to deliver the industrial strategy and the skills plan, you've got to have a suitably skilled workforce, which includes people with A-levels and degrees who can be the scientists, the business leaders, the teachers of the future. Mm. It's also true that the government won't necessarily push more people into T-levels by dropping applied generals and presenting a binary choice at 16. I say binary because, of course, apprenticeships would, would, would be a third pathway. But in terms of college learning it's a binary choice yeah all in all 83 percent of 16 year olds choose an academic sixth form education it's going to be really difficult to make a big shift with an untried untested qualification with a 315 hour work placement requirement it's going to be difficult yeah a department for education spokesperson said We are not developing T-levels in four routes because the occupations in these areas are better suited to apprenticeships. We are transforming technical education through the introduction of new T-levels and will be investing an extra half a billion pounds a year in England's technical education system once they are up and running. The extra funding that the government talks about, this half a billion of extra funding, doesn't make clear that this isn't actually additional money. This is more money for the sector to pay for more education. So the funding rate remains the same. So a young person doing a T-level will have to do a significant amount, a significant amount of work placement and extra tuition, and it's that that the half a billion is paying for. So colleges won't have additional money to pay for new resources and so on, a wider offer they will be using this extra money to pay for the extra education that T-levels demand. Yeah. Let's move on to the next piece, which is by Richard Atkins, who's the FE Commissioner, who talks about what his role actually is. The headline is, don't look at the Commissioner as an executioner. Um, FE Commissioner Richard Atkins says his team is on a mission to help colleges and it brings unparalleled expertise to institutions that have failed offset inspections or got into financial difficulties. What are your thoughts on the role of the FE Commissioner? I've always found Richard to be uh, very knowledgeable and sympathetic to sixth form colleges, Um, but I do think it's a shame that the sixth form college sector 
no longer has a dedicated commissioner, nor any Sixth Form College-specific uh, deputy on Richard's team. Um, we are delighted, of course, that the Sixth Form College sector has one of the first appointed MLFEs, so that's good. Um, we, of course, in our sector have two commissioners. We have Richard, who looks after the designated Sixth Form Colleges, but we've also got 20 colleges that have now adopted academy status that come under what today is Sir David Carter as the National Schools Commissioner, um, and he's obviously announced his retirement or his uh, retirement from the role very soon, and we'll be looking to see who is appointed as his successor. The other thing to say about Richard's work with the Sixth Form College sector is the Strategic College Improvement Fund, which is an important avenue for system leadership, and I think this is something that Richard would like to see more of. It's something that um, the school sector has been engaged in quite extensively for a number of years, and I'm delighted to see how many colleges are increasingly taking part in adopting system leadership roles. Sixth Form Colleges have significant expertise. They have specialist knowledge of 16 to 19 teaching, and they have proven governance and business strengths in their colleges. And it's important that they take these strengths outside the sector and inform good practice elsewhere. Richard talks about the, the centrality of, of teaching, learning and assessment. He says there needs to be a relentless focus on teaching, learning and assessment. Some leadership teams can fall into the trap of being overly corporate they must stay close to the core mission. There must be a positive can-do atmosphere of achievement. Staff must feel valued and success must be celebrated. I've got to say, I was pleased when I saw Richard Atkins had taken over as FE Commissioner because from my own personal experiences, I've had lots of conversations with him over the years. And as much as he's been a very well-known principal, he could have the real in-depth teacher conversations with me. I felt like he really knew all about teaching, learning and assessment from my perspective of somebody who stands in front of a class full of, of young people. And that's me being able to apply that clear understanding and knowledge that he has to a whole organisational perspective. It was really reassuring. It is really reassuring to me. I think that's right, Sarah. And I think also that, that Richard ticks a number of boxes. He's, he's clearly got a proven track record and a passion for teaching and learning. But he also understands the connection between strategic leadership and financial situations, and, and he would like to see the finance strategy aligned to the leadership of the institution very closely. And, and he gets the whole importance of governance in understanding where the organisation is and how to take it to the next place. So, so he has a very rounded experience and a very clear way of communicating his um, his priorities. Let's move on to the last piece, which is me going on about when I had my epiphany. About 10 years ago, I started teaching in an FE college. It was a few months after I'd, I'd started doing my diploma in teaching in the lifelong learning sector, my details course. And part of my idea of getting into this was that I could have a real solid, linear career that I knew that I was ambitious and I knew where my career could go you know I'd seen the management steps that you could take because my previous careers had been freelance stuff really risky but really fulfilling and they'd worked out very well but I wanted some stability and some predictability and very quickly things kind of moved on I was a sessional lecturer but I'd started 
doing all sorts of other bits and pieces at college. I'd started some lunchtime clubs and I was going to loads and loads of CPD for everything. And I'd started writing for the TES. And we had a new principal and he contacted me and asked me to be his critical friend in the organisation. It was unpaid time, but, you know, I thought it was a great development opportunity and I, I, I did it. However, it hadn't been necessarily managed in the senior leadership team. So as far as everybody else was concerned, I was just pitching up to stuff as a sessional lecturer. I felt, in retrospect, there wasn't management of me just turning up. So understandably, my appearance didn't always go down down well. Why, why would it? Certain areas got more kind of hostile and it all came to a head when I wasn't invited to a party, but I was asked by some people in senior leadership to contact a business leader that I knew quite well to invite them to this college party. But it was very clear that I wasn't allowed to be there myself. And I, I learned all about this while sitting on a beach in Mexico on my holidays. And I thought, no, enough. That's rude. I don't like it. Don't want to work here anymore. So that's when I kind of moved away from the idea of having this linear career that I thought I was moving into. Has your career been a linear one where you knew, you know what step is going to be the next one to get you to the you know to the very senior role in the in the sector that you are now, or has it been leaping about all over the place? Well, I've had a very conventional career path, but I do think that your experience and, and congratulations, by the way, it sounds very interesting. This um, portfolio employment landscape is increasingly common, not just in education, of course, but but more widely. I think there are advantages and disadvantages. I think the world can be a little bit scary if you're not quite sure how much work you're going to be doing in the following week or how much uh, you're going to have in the bank to pay the mortgage at the end of the month. Oh, absolutely. But that's do... That's been the case at my house always. <laughs> I'm sure. But I think also that kind of flexibility gives you, as you say, a bit of excitement and it gives you the opportunity to be involved in lots of different projects and get a lot of variety in your working life. When I went through this, I decided that compared to my previous careers, which was acting and, and screenwriting, well, the education sector is, is very stable. Even on a freelance, you know, sessional, looking for different types of work within the sector basis. So I decided that I would think what I wanted my career to look like. Where do I want to work? What do I want to do? Do, do I want to work at home? Do I want to be in a team with a lot of other people? how much creativity and flexibility of my own do I want or do I need to be quite tightly managed and I really thought about all those things of what makes a career and wrote them down and wrote kind of an ingredients list of what I wanted for my career and tried to work with that which has broadly gone to plan three or four years ago I remember one day in the end of July where all my contracts were coming to an end of about four different places that I was working for in different contexts. And there was one day where I looked at my calendar and there was nothing on it, nothing on it. So I just had a bit of a panic. It was one of those, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I had Some of us might call that a cause for celebration. <laughs> well, the would if there was any money coming in. Luckily, things had sorted themselves out by the end of the week and I had an, another load of contracts renewed and, you know, other working. Yeah. It's a scary yeah. memory thinking of that day. 
yeah, yeah. Well, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you, Bill. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure to talk to you. This has been the TESFE podcast with Bill Watkin and me, Sarah Simons. Join us again soon for all the FE news and views. Thanks for listening.